Thank you so much, Molly, for uh, kind of beginning our series for the summer. We're actually going to be in 1 Corinthians all the way uh, through August, really. So uh, it's kind of an uh, exciting thing. But I, I think one of the things a lot of people are often thinking when we begin a series, there's kind of a curiosity as to, to why. Why exactly would we choose this series? Why would we choose to be in 1 Corinthians, especially for an entire summer, right? And for me, I think Corinth is kind of this uh, really interesting city that has parallels to the, the modern city. You guys will have to forgive me. I have to do this at the beginning because if I try to do it at the end, it never opens for me. If any of you guys want to pregame your, uh, your communion, you can now. Okay, that's what I like to do at the beginning before things get crazy because in the moment my little circus hands don't seem to work. So you guys forgive me. I belong in the circus with my tiny hands, all right? <laughs> now, I, I, really think, I really think that the city of Corinth is a, is a good cross-section of what the ancient city was like, especially the ancient Greek city. It has all of these, these parallels to, to, to modern cities at the same time, right? It's speaking to situations that, though they're ancient, have a way of speaking to our present cultural moment powerfully. Corinth was this incredibly cosmopolitan, kind of diverse city because it sat on one of the world's major trading routes. There were all of these people coming through Corinth from all these different parts of the world, okay? And so Corinth became a reflection of all of these different cultures that were represented there. And Corinth was, was one of those cities that developed a bit of a reputation. And, and Corinth's reputation, first and foremost, was for its it's hypersexualized culture. Everyone in the ancient world knew this about Corinth, right? Like in the U.S., we think about Las Vegas. We think about Miami. These kinds of cities are places people tend to associate with like a good time. You go there to party. You go there to get in trouble, right? There's that sort of connotation associated with these cities. I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas. I've only been once. It's kind of an interesting experience. And my thoughts on it were, were something like, you know, it's like, sure, I mean, I guess you can have a good time here. Once you get past the topless bars and the prostitution and the gratuitous sex everywhere, once you get past the sort of kind of icky, gross quality of the place, it's like, yeah, sure, there's, there's a lot of bright lights, a lot of entertainment, good shows you can see, but you have to get past all of that. See, Corinth was the same. It was the same. There was this sort of gross quality about it. And the church became a reflection of a lot of those issues. Corinth was like that. You, you can go to Corinth. You might enjoy the city. There's a lot happening there. But chances are when you leave, you're going to feel like you need to kind of shower. Kind of like wash the Corinth off. It, it's just one of those places. And that's why Paul spends so much of 1 Corinthians addressing relationships. Addressing uh, what a Christian sexual ethic looks like. What is sexuality supposed to look like in the life of a believer? He spends a lot of time talking about these things. One of the other things that you find in Corinth that they are heavily shaped by is like what you see in uh, a lot of ancient Greek cities. There's an emphasis on philosophy. There's an emphasis on rhetoric and oration. These people have created celebrities in their culture. Their celebrities are the ones who are the, the best debaters, right? Their celebrities are the ones who can entertain you best with their thoughts, who can hold your attention. 
who speak most eloquently. These are, are their celebrities. They loved a good argument, a good debate. And as culture often does in the life of the church, it shapes how we approach church, how we approach theology. Culture affects us, how we understand the world. And we bring all of that with us when we come into worship. And that means one of Paul's biggest obstacles in Corinth is dealing with a group of people who want what they've seen in their culture in their pastor. They want that. When somebody comes and, and wants to speak before them, they want it to look the same way. They want someone who's, who's charismatic, who speaks with strength. They want an orator. And Paul insists on the weakness of the cross. Not strength, not eloquence, not worldly wisdom. He insists on the cross of Jesus, on the weakness of a, a Messiah who was crucified. It's not an attractive message in the ancient world. They can't equate the two things. They seem diametrically opposed. A Messiah who gets crucified. Paul insists on the weakness of it. So many of the struggles of the church at Corinth were a reflection of their culture. And what's helpful for me about Corinth is, is Corinth is one of those places that reminds those of us who tend to kind of romanticize the early church. I don't know if you've ever done that. Maybe like you read what's happening in Acts or you read something Paul says in one of these letters and you think, man, these people, what they were getting to experience is amazing. If I could experience that, right? We romanticize what they're experiencing. But the truth is, Corinth shows us the church was a mess. The church has always been this. It's always had incredible things happening and, and unsightly, terrible kinds of things happening. Corinth was that. It was like a, a lot of cities and churches that we have known. The people in the church at Corinth were like a lot of church people we've known. They argued. They disagreed. They divided over a whole lot of issues. And so naturally, as you begin this book, it's with a... A note of division. That's the first thing Paul has to address is the divisiveness of their church experience. They've divided over who they think should be their leaders, right? Which leaders they prefer, really. They've attached themselves to certain personalities who've taught there. They lean into this. They've created a celebrity culture in the church, ultimately. And Paul, instead, is calling them to the unity of Christ in the spirit. This is what he keeps pressing on them. You'll see that emphasis on unity over and over again. There's this reminder in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians that we as the church are not called to some individual experience. And in our culture, that's the emphasis. And that's important. That is an aspect of what it is to follow Jesus. It is an individual reality. I must come to Jesus as an individual. I must choose to follow him as an individual. But I am not called merely as an individual. I am called as a part of a group of people, the people of God, the church. And I have to lean into that. That's what Paul is calling us to. We're not called into some individual experience. We're called into the unity of this diverse community, the church. We can't forget that or, or lose sight of it. Wherever we may find ourselves... In this diversity of experience, we're called 
from that place, wherever you may find yourself, you've been a believer for weeks or months, you've been a believer for years, all of your life, regardless of where you find yourself, on a political spectrum, regardless of where you find yourself, on theological perspectives, you're called together with the church to draw ever nearer to who Jesus is. That is our aim. That is the thing we're pushing toward. That is what binds us together. We are all together moving toward Jesus. That is our desire. And division seems to take us the opposite direction. There's this one story in John 7. Maybe you remember it. Jesus goes up to the temple. I don't know what all that popping is about, but we'll, uh, we'll just continue. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. While he's there, he's teaching in the temple. And the crowds have started to kind of gather. And the interesting thing about it all is that the crowds can't really decide what they think about Jesus. They can't agree on what they believe about this man from Galilee. John tells us that there are some of the people who are there, and they say, surely this man is the prophet. Right? When they say prophet, they're thinking Moses. They're thinking Elijah. Right? He is the embodiment of prophecy. He's like one of them. He's come to reveal the word of God to us, right? He's the prophet, surely. But then there's this other group of people, and they, they've kind of taken it a step further. They say, no, he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited, anointed one. He's the Christ. But then there's this other group who's always in the background, the leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, this opposition group. And they see Jesus as, as a troublemaker. Jesus is a problem and he needs to be arrested and this movement needs to be stopped, right? There are all these different opinions about Jesus. And what John tells us is the people were divided because of Jesus. It's the same word that he's using in our passage today. He says the crowds were schisma in Greek. It's where we get the word schism. It's where we get schismatic, right? It's about being torn, right? The people were torn about what they thought about Jesus. They didn't know what to think of him. They were torn, split over who Jesus was. And that's what Paul begins with in this letter. He begins by appealing to this group of believers at the church, and he urges that they not be divided any longer. He says, don't be schisma. It's an emphasis in this letter. He begins there and he stays there throughout so much of 1 Corinthians. Don't let yourselves be divided. Don't let yourselves be torn. Be united. And the words he's using are, are so literal. Our, our translations don't always kind of express it. We say be united in this translation, but it means literally to be knit together. Be sewn together like a garment that's torn can be mended, be sewn together like a fisherman's nets is another thing you'll see in the New Testament. Just like those nets are mended, be bound to one another, sewn together in this way. Yes, you were divided, but now be bound together. He repeats the word same, actually, three different times in that 10th verse, our first verse today. Three different times he says same. Now, if you look at our translation, it says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus that all of you agree with one another. It's a great translation. It gets at the heart of what he's saying. Literally, though, he says, I appeal to you 
that you all say the same thing. Say the same thing. So this is how the rest of it goes, right? He says, don't be divided. Say the same thing, right? He keeps pressing. Be of the same mind. Be of the same thought or opinion, however you'd like to to think of that. He presses it again and again. Don't be divided. Be the same. Now, what we hear, I think, when when we think about that is what Paul means by unity is uniformity. We're all supposed to be the same, and that's not at all what he's saying. The church is not supposed to be a picture of a bunch of people who are all exactly the same. We're not all supposed to look alike or think alike or feel the same about certain issues. It's okay. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that's not at all what Paul means by unity. Paul means unity in diversity. You're not all supposed to look the same. That's not unity at all. That's a shadow of what unity really is. Unity is when all of these people who are uniquely gifted, who come from unique experiences, are all bound together as one. We're not all supposed to be the same and agree about absolutely everything. What he's saying is there ought to be unity in the midst of your diversity. As different as we all are, right? As unique as we all are, as unique as he's made us, as gifted in so many different ways as we may be, what Paul is saying is we are to agree about Jesus. And these little differences of opinion, these little differences in who we are, all these things that make us different, it cannot change that, what we believe about Jesus. Paul is saying, don't be divided like the crowds listening to Jesus. Don't be schisma. No. Be united. Be in agreement. Jesus is Lord, or he's nothing. Be united, be bound to one another in this way. But, as you can imagine, news is is traveling kind of quickly to Paul. He's no longer in Corinth. He's in Ephesus in this other city. He's established a church there. He's doing work there. And the news comes from Chloe's household. And the news is not good. Now, this is a, a sermon for a different day, but just pay attention to the fact that Chloe is named. Chloe's a woman, and she's a leader in the church. If you look in other letters, you'll find the name of Priscilla. She's also someone who Paul knows from Corinth. She's named before her husband. Like, you get a sense in this letter of the important role that women were playing. Chloe's household is named, right? Paul wants you to know that Chloe's important. He mentions her again later. But the news has come. Okay, that's a, that's a sermon from a, for a different day. Recognize that, know that, celebrate the role of women in the early church. But the news comes from Chloe's household, news that is not good. They're arguing, they're divided, they kind of split. And it's not just issues that divide them, it's leadership. Not because these particular figures have encouraged that or fostered that environment, but simply because they prefer certain people. They've attached themselves to certain people. Some say, I follow Paul. He names himself because he wants you to know that's not okay, even if it's me, right? I follow Paul, some say. I follow Apollos. Others say, I follow Cephas. It's just the Aramaic translation of Peter's name. We're used to seeing the Greek form of it. This is Peter's name. There's even an especially holy group, a really sanctimonious group of people who say, 
I hear you, but I follow Christ. There's that group. But regardless, all of them have attached themselves to their favorite personality. They've divided over their favorite personality, their chosen authority figure who they think is to be most elevated. They've created celebrities in the church, just like those in their culture and just like those in ours. They've created celebrities in the church, and and just like them, we have this this tendency to try and and create a, a celebrity culture in the church. And we wouldn't say it in so many words, but we do. We attach ourselves to certain personalities. We're prone to it. It's hard not to sometimes. And I think in our day, it might be easier than ever. Because you can listen to someone's, oh, man, you're killing me. This is rough, guys. But uh, if it gets too much, we'll switch to the other microphone. Think about it. Like, you don't just have access to, to some person's sermons. Right? You can listen to a guy's sermons from the other side of the country or even the other side of the world, for that matter. That can happen. You can follow them on Instagram, right? You can know not just what they've said in their most recent sermon, but their most recent tweet. You can know about their family, right? You can attach themselves at such a deep level. It happens all the time. And so very often what we end up doing is we end up living our spiritual lives through someone else's. There's this spiritually sort of voyeuristic experience that we're prone to. And very often for us to follow Jesus means to to follow someone else's experience of Jesus. We attach ourselves to these people. We become voyeuristic. We want to just kind of peer into their lives. Yeah, you guys just bring me that other microphone. That's fine. Sorry, gang. We have this way of living our spiritual lives through someone else entirely. And the idea is this. I want to know Jesus like they know Jesus. They seem to have access to Jesus in a different way than I do. And I can't help but be drawn to that. Uh, Peter Scazzaro calls it. You guys might remember we talked about emotionally healthy spirituality in the beginning of the year. And he just says, sometimes we choose to live off someone else's spirituality. We, we want to live off someone else's spirituality. We feed off of their faith while ours feels kind of stagnant. And the, the dangerous thing about all of that is that ultimately we lose sight at some point that we are feeding off someone else's spirituality. It's been so stagnant for so long and we've been feeding off of them for so long that we don't recognize that isn't our relationship with Jesus. It's someone else's entirely. We're living off someone else's spirituality rather than what Jesus himself is offering us. And that's why people are so often drawn to certain churches and and certain pastors. We attach ourselves to these qualities. We know Maybe that we aren't experiencing this deep and intimate relationship with Jesus. But we can at least tie ourselves to someone who is, right? The logic is something like this. I may not be experiencing any of this. I may not know what that's really like. 
I may not be doing anything, but man, this church, this church sure is doing a lot of good stuff. They're doing some incredible things for the kingdom. This, this author, this lady, this guy is, has written, written some, some really powerful things, right? And by association with this person, with this church, whatever it might be, I guess that means I am as well. We're experiencing our spiritual lives by association, voyeuristically. And the people we kind of attach ourselves to, they have these certain qualities that we're really attracted to, and they're good. Sometimes it's the best of intentions. Like we're looking at somebody and we're like, seriously, they're just dripping with the Holy Spirit. They're just covered up in Jesus. They seem to know Jesus. They smell like Jesus. It's obvious that they know him, right? And through the best of intentions, we begin to, to follow people. They seem to be a reflection of who Jesus is, or at least who we want Jesus to be, what we imagine Jesus is like. They have all of those qualities. And so Paul lays out all of these different figures, right? They say, I follow Paul. Now think about this figure in the early church. Paul is OG apostle, right? Literally the first believer these people may have ever known. The first Christian they ever came in contact with. Like he evangelized the church at Corinth, and, and Paul is all in, and that is obvious. Paul is a man who has been imprisoned in chains for this message he's preaching. He's not just saying nice things. This isn't just empty rhetoric. They all know it. This guy is giving his life for it. He's all in. I want to be all in. Sign me up, right? We're drawn to that kind of figure who's passionate in that sort of way. Think about Apollos. We don't know as much about Apollos. He's not as, as familiar a figure. But what we do know about Apollos is he's incredibly gifted. He's incredibly charismatic. He's a gifted orator. He's intelligent. That's what we're reading about him in the New Testament and early church literature. There's even some hints that Apollos wasn't just intelligent. He was good looking. That's the story about Apollos. People were drawn to him because he was everything you could want in a leader. And you look at somebody like Apollos and you think, like, I mean, he's a lot like Jesus, right? Because that's how you want Jesus to be. This handsome, incredibly intelligent, incredibly charismatic figure. You say, Jesus, he captivated the crowds. He held them in the palm of his hand. They, had, they were like hanging on his every word. You know, that's what the church needs. That kind of figure. I, I follow Apollos. And then there's, there's Peter. He's the one we're the most familiar with. He's got the longest history in the New Testament. He's been following Jesus for the longest. He knew Jesus in person. He lived alongside him for three years, this Peter. Heck, I mean, Peter was so passionate about it that he, he chopped a guy's ear off in the name of Jesus. He's misled sometimes, misguided. But Peter becomes this authority figure in the early church. He becomes an important man in the early church. When people say Peter's name, it means something, right? And you can kind of feel drawn to that, that importance, that circumstance. People are drawn to Peter. But then there's this other group that kind of mystifies us. They say, I follow Christ. And Paul's almost, he, he's rejecting it in the same breath as all of these other groups. And that can be a little confusing. It's hard to imagine how they could be wrong. 
they say, I follow Christ. What's wrong with following Christ? Isn't that what Peter is, excuse me, what Paul is kind of pushing us toward? If you read in 1 Corinthians 11, read further in this book, he will literally say, follow me as I follow Christ. Words right out of his mouth. So how can this be wrong for them to say, I follow Christ? I think we recognize whether they follow Paul or Apollos, whether they're claiming loyalty to Peter, whoever it might be, we recognize that to elevate those people above Christ, to exalt them in importance above Christ himself, we know that is a problem, right? But what about this group? And what Paul is kind of pressing us toward is this. At its core, every one of these groups is problematic for one reason. At the simplest level, every one of them is defined by I. Every one of them exalts I. Pay attention to that. Like Paul doesn't just say, some of you follow me, some of you follow Apollos or Peter. No, he says, some of you say, I. He keeps emphasizing this first person, this singular individual experience. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. They all have this air of exclusivity about them, right? When I say I follow Apollos, the sense is that you do not. You don't know what I know. You don't know him like I know him. I follow Apollos. You follow somebody else. I get it, but I, I follow Peter. Whoever it might be, even those who say I follow Christ have a way of exalting themselves above someone else in the church. That doesn't mean we can never say, I follow Christ. It just means in this scenario, that's what's happening. It's creating division. They're all exalting I above others. And in essence, any move we make in the church away from our brother, away from our sister, is ultimately a move away from Jesus. Anytime we exalt ourselves above another, it is a move away from Jesus. We get that to choose to follow one of those other people and exalt them above Christ is a problem. I don't think we recognize necessarily that to exalt self above someone else is ultimately to exalt self above Christ. This is the problem with those who can say, even those who can say, I follow Christ, are guilty of exalting themselves above Jesus himself. It's a problem. It is always a move. Division is always a move, not toward Jesus, but away from him. And Paul keeps pressing against division. And I, don't, I don't know what y'all's experience of church has been. I don't know what your spirituality looks like. I think in the last year and a half, for all of us, it's been kind of a mixed bag. It's been an interesting sort of time. And I think we can all find ourselves in different places. Some people would say this has been a, a year of renewal, right? It was a time where they could give themselves completely to discipleship or to spirituality, to prayer and scripture in a different way maybe than they have, right? There was more time alone, more space in their lives for that. Maybe during all of this you find yourself kind of like giving authority to someone. Someone you don't even know. It happens a lot. Someone who doesn't even know you understand you who's not in your life at all and you find yourself kind of feeding off of their spirituality we're prone to it our relationship with Jesus can very easily become mediated through someone else 
pastors, it happens all the time. Sometimes it's a spouse. You just kind of, your whole relationship with Jesus is mediated through theirs. It happens. This person can become almost like the voice of God for you. You don't feel like you're hearing any of that. But they are, so you just kind of trust what it is they're hearing. And you find yourself not even recognizing it. They've become the voice of God for you. Sometimes what's even more difficult is it's not actually a person. Sometimes it's not a person that's leading you away from Jesus. Sometimes it's an idea. We become captivated with ideas. Maybe it's a theological perspective. We know this. Look at the church historically. Christians have very often thrown their favorite theologian's name in front of their churches. Their opinions on whatever they're reading in Scripture is whatever their favorite theologian said at some point in history. And they divide over it. We've seen that happen. Maybe it's an idea like, like liberalism or conservatism. We see it happen in the church all the time. We can fall in love with an idea just like we can fall in love with a person. We can be drawn to an idea in the same way. And what happens very often is all it takes is somebody just appealing to that one idea. All they have to do is make that one argument that you love. All they have to do is mention that one idea and it seems to shut everything else down. You know it. They appeal to that one idea and you are sold. Even if it divides us, even if it requires us to jettison everything we have ever believed about Jesus. If it calls into question everything you've ever believed. If the right person tweets it, you're kind of like, well, should I? It happens. Like We're living in that culture in this moment. Because of all of this, the church tends to divide along the exact same lines that our culture does. We divide along the exact same political lines in the church. It's heartbreaking when you realize that's what's happening almost everywhere. I was expressing my frustration to a, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Texas this week. It, it's really frustrating when you can just predict it. It's so predictable. You tell me how you vote in the last election, and I can tell you most likely how you feel about certain passages of Scripture how you feel about who Jesus is, what you believe the church is supposed to look like. We divide along the same lines, and it's so predictable, and it's so empty and lifeless. Sometimes, for our generation, it's just something as simple as a tweet. Just from the right, right person, that's all it can be. It doesn't take much. Somebody who we trust from our particular theological world or perspective, and all it takes is them saying it. And it can turn our whole world upside down. It can call everything into question. Some people I have watched abandon theological orthodoxy, things they believe their whole lives. I've watched people abandon a, a, a Christian sexual ethic. I have watched people abandon all kinds of things. They've let go of their theology as a whole simply because some intelligent person, some gifted person, said it in a tweet. They posted, and then it got reposted. It got a certain number of likes. And it makes us think, well, maybe, maybe I, I need to take that seriously. We're not talking about an academic article. We're not talking about engaging theology. We're not talking about anything of, of real consequence. Just a, a post that's been reposted. Just a clever paragraph composed by someone that you don't even know. And we can be led away from it. 
The truth is, like, we may not say things like, I follow Paul. You would never put your pastor's name in that blank, right? You'd never fill in that blank with that particular figure. That seems foreign to you. You get that would be a problem. But I think a lot of times we do things like, well, I'm a conservative. Before we ever tell somebody what we believe, that, that's kind of what we lead with. Well, I'm a, I'm a conservative. We look at a passage and say, well, as a progressive, this is what I think about it. It happens. I'm a progressive Christian. I go to an affirming church. Right, fill in the blank, whatever it is. I have watched people. I'm a pastor, right? This happens. Somebody says, oh, you're a pastor. Okay, what kind of church do you pastor? This is what my church is like. And very often, the things they describe their church with surprise me. They don't tell me about their love for mission, their desire to, to share the gospel. They don't tell me the story of how their church began. They tell me something like that. Fill in their favorite detail, who they are politically, in essence. And that's how we define ourselves sometimes. And the thing Paul wants you to see is any descriptor, any person, any name, any idea you would put in front of church, any name or idea you would put in front of Christ is a problem. It cannot define you more than Jesus. No man, no woman, no idea, no theological perspective, no school of thought, no particular political ideology can divide us. We can't allow it. The church can't be marked by those things. And we have to press that over and over again. We can't allow division to exist among us as we pursue Jesus. Those things that are different about us, that's good. We celebrate diversity. But it cannot divide us in our pursuit of Jesus. And that's what happens so often. It's what's happening right now. We can't exalt ourselves above one another, or even worse, above Christ, not realizing it. And that's what I think is beautiful about the table. As we move toward the table, I, I think there is something beautiful about it. The band's going to come and we're going to celebrate communion together. But what's, what's beautiful about the table is that everyone in the church, as diverse, as unique as we all are, everyone has a seat at this table. And no one's at the center of the table. Nobody has a bigger seat than anyone else. What's at the center of the table is the body and blood of Jesus. This is the focus of everything that we're doing. We eat one loaf. Normally, if it weren't for a pandemic, we'd be eating one loaf. We drink of one cup, just as the disciples did. We're bound together in this way. Though we're all unique, though we're all different, we have different stories and we have different gifts and different political positions and different opinions about the present moment we're living in, regardless, we must all be united in this one thing we believe about Jesus. We must all be united in that. All knit together in this desire to know him more intimately. All sewn together by his redemptive work in the cross. Nothing else matters in reality. Everything else is subordinate to that. All of our other differences of opinion, all of our other preferences, all these other ideas or people, all subordinate to that, the redemptive work of Jesus. And this is what we're giving ourselves to. This is what we're bound to together. So in these moments, I invite you guys 
can open up your cup. And we say, even as Christ did, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. blood of Christ poured out for the sins of many take and drink amen father would you in these moments stir us to unity in the midst of a culture that's marked by division God would we as your people as unique and diverse as we all are God, would we be bound together in this thing we don't want to put ourselves in the center of the church. We want to put your son Jesus at the center and we all want to move together toward him. We don't want to judge one another because someone's at a different place in their pursuit of Jesus and their movement toward him and their discipleship experience. We just want to all move together toward, it is, toward who it is you are. Help us to get there, Lord. May we be a people who are marked by unity rather than division. May we, re may we be revealing the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the way that we live. May you be glorified in who we are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.